Now loading a very special episode of Geek Top 5. Woohoo! I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we are just coming off of the Electronic Entertainment Expo, the foremost place for people to put out their latest stuff and video games that you want to buy. We had our crack team of elite scientific researchers dig into it, and we've come up with the top five things from E3. Yep. So let's start with Detroit Become Human. This this is kind of a cool reveal. Uh, this is the latest video game from the studio Quantic Dream, uh, which is basically the studio for David Cage, who's a... He's like, he's what you'd call it like in film or, or art circles, an auteur. And you don't see too many of those in video games. It's like him and maybe Hideo Kojima, right? Yeah. And even then, like that sort of gets a weird pass over here because everyone expects Japan to be a little strange. Right. Yeah, no, he's done some cool stuff. Um, the breakthrough with this was Heavy Rain in 2010. And then shortly after, in 2013, it was Beyond Two Souls was his major production. Huge thing. It starred Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. It was a big video game. Both of these are... Less video games in the sense of, you know, running around with a blaster and more interactive movies. Yeah, it seems to be the, the common term that gets thrown around for them. There's a lot of, uh, you know, intricate moral decision making with them. and it. But like a video game, there's paths, you know, the story will change depending on the choices that you make. Yeah, and it, sometimes that can be done really loosely in a video game. It can be, you know, the early Star Wars ones were a great example of this. Do you go light side or dark side? Basically meant, like, do you use your force powers to hurt people, and then you see the ending where you're bad? Right. Or do you use their force powers to heal people, and you see the ending where you're good? No, in this, there was a lot more complicated, um, also a lot more realistic. It had more to do with real characters and their, you know, real problems. Yeah, isn't there a Penny Arcade where uh, making fun of those sorts of uh, moral choices in, in a lot of these video games that are supposed to be all about choice, where it was like, give a girl a flower or drive a school bus full of puppies off a cliff? Yeah. It's not really like a delicate balance. Right. Quantic Dream data, where it's not just a light side, dark side thing. It's just what, like, you're controlling this character right now. What choice do they make in this situation? And a lot of times it was things like Heavy Rain was the great example. There were four sort of protagonists, and you follow each one's individual story. They eventually meet each other and meet up. But things could happen to these characters. They're, they're involved in a serial killer drama. It was the origami killer, uh, because they had funny ways. Their American <laughs> accents weren't great. Um, but characters could die. Um, and then the rest of the story would change if that character wasn't around. And not just like at the climax either, but you could make a mistake. And, and then that was just your story. That was how it progressed. Um, Detroit Become Human is the latest one they're coming up with. Um, and it just, oh, the demo at E3 was fantastic. It's, it posits a world, in a way it's an overused science fiction trope. It's, yeah. So there's humans and there's and androids who look like humans. Yeah, it's very uh, Asimov, the, the whole iRobot thing, you know, about the... The morality of, of androids and when do they become people. Exactly. That seems to be the, the moral of this thing. Yeah, so we've seen it all the time. We saw it in Blade Runner. Yeah. Probably. I mean, you know what, let's end it at Blade Runner because I think that's one of the best portrayals of it. Certainly. Um, the demo at E3 showed a scene where there's a hostage situation where this android has gone nuts and has this little girl. And the character that the player is playing is an android sort of hostage negotiator. And because they're showing off the dramatic impact of this, the negotiation goes poorly, and the you know, the criminal android and the little girl end up dead. But then it zooms back out and says, here's all the things that could have happened differently. Yeah, this is a great trailer. It really made me want to play the game. You know, you go in as the android, and you, you can either go straight to the hostage situation and, and interact with the hostage taker, but you're not going to have many options because you haven't surveyed the scene. So you, if you go 
start over again and you go into the room where the the taking happened and the where there'd been some violence you analyze what happened but you've got this ticking clock in the corner where you have to get all this stuff done or as much as you can done and still be able to have time to, yeah, to he's talk out, with this guy. He's out there waiting for you, and he's going to hurt this little girl. Yeah, but you know, you like the show. You can investigate the scene. You find out like what his motivations are. You find out like you know the family was shopping for a new android, and there's like, <laughs> and so it seems like a lot of the themes of the game are going to be that you know what makes you know, at what point does an android become real? Mm-hmm. Uh, what and by extension, what what makes a person real? Like, what yeah. does feelings and stuff matter? It seems like a really fun way to portray it. And like the and David Cage has said in interviews, like you're never going to be controlling human characters in this. There are multiple characters, but they're all going to be these androids who are sort of in this situation. And whether it's something that's happening to them or whether they're reacting to it, learning about what it means to be a person, to be alive. Yeah, which is one of my favorite science fiction <laughs> things ever. And having it coming from this studio, just like, I can't wait. It looks phenomenal. So I, I haven't played any of these uh, games by the, this company before. In your playthroughs of them, like how how different do you think each person's take on the game is? Like how it, extraordinarily, like they all add because it's such a butterfly effect. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, Heavy Rain. My first playthrough, I lost one of the characters. And I made the decision, like, I'm going to go ahead with that. But then I went back and said, what changes if this character is around? Everything. Hmm. In Become Human, Cage has said there's a roughly, like, six major different ways that hostage negotiation can end. And we see most of them in that trailer. Right. But then there's also the smaller things, and who knows how that's going to compare to things. Yeah, and it also sounded like there were something like six potential main characters, but all of them could die at some point, and the story just continues without them. Yeah. it's you know, If a character dies, it's not game over, go back and try again. It's, well, that's what happened. Yeah. It, it sounds pretty cool. It's it's a fun takeaway in terms of pure gameplay value. Obviously, it adds a lot of replay value. Yeah. Because once you've had your story, you go back and deliberately change things to see the other stories. And there aren't necessarily good endings and bad endings. They're just different endings. Hmm. I guess good or bad for, the, you know, obviously better endings for the people who survive. <laughs> Uh, it looks like a blast. We don't have a release date for it yet, but they've shown a lot of gameplay. They've shown a lot of stuff. They're well on their way, so we're looking forward to seeing that soon. Okay, so number four on the list is a sequel to a game that we both enjoyed, a fighting game called Injustice, Gods Among Us, which seemed to be lacking a prerequisite uh, detail in there that it's about the DC comic book characters. Yeah, they're definitely banking on the popularity of the earlier game. Yeah. This, uh, this is NetherRealm Studios. This is the guys who were the Mortal Kombat guys. Back in the day, the two big fighting games were Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat, and the Street Fighter guys ended up in a big deal with Marvel Comics, so now you have Marvel versus Capcom. Yeah. So the Street Fighter guys fight the Marvel Universe. They try- DC tried to get in on that by having DC versus Mortal Kombat, but it didn't blend as well. Mortal Kombat is a very R-rated like decapitations left and right universe, and it's hard to cross that over with Superman. Yeah. So what they did in 2013, they released just Injustice, which was the DC fighting game but with by the Mortal Kombat guys, and it was great. Mm-hmm. Had a really interesting story mode, actually. I mean, it, comic books suit that world very well, because when anyone meets each other, they have to fight first, because they're sure. superheroes. But, I mean, my understanding of the story is it's something like... I've never been really good at following the stories in fighting games, so just correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, the Joker tricks Superman into killing Lois and blowing up Metropolis with like Joker gas or some such, and Superman has decided like enough of this supervillain stuff. I'm going to take over the world and run it well, and he creates a dystopia. 
Right. And then the, because it's comic books, you have all the other alternate universes where that hasn't happened. And so the Batman of bad Superman universe goes to get all the superheroes we're familiar with, including good Superman, to come help out. Okay. Because of bad Superman. Um, yeah, it's very much a comic book plot. But right. It was a really solid fighting game. You know, the mechanics were fun, it was fun to play as, and it was really great to see all these DC characters. They are making a sequel, Injustice 2. It actually looks a lot like the first game, but in, I guess, what makes a sequel perfect, they're just taking it and magnifying everything. Yeah. One of the new uh, additions that I'm not totally comfortable with is the idea that people are going to drop loot and you're going to build armor, and to me that seems to, it's like the antithesis of what fighting games are. Absolutely, yeah, and that's been a major concern in the professional video game community, and I know some of you don't, but yes, that's a real thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, fighting games should be about skill, and the different characters you pick should be balanced against when one character is slow but strong, one is weak but fast. Right. Yeah, in this case, that throws that off, and Ed Boon, the guy behind NetherRealm Studios, has already said, well, for tournament play, like, you know, you can turn that off, and the, the loot won't mean anything, but in terms of playing the game... As you play, you're going to collect cool upgrades for your character mm-hmm. to make them stronger or faster, depending on what you have. That an upgrade system, like loot system, just being a big thing in video games these days. Destiny is all about it. The Division is all about it. Borderlands, right? Isn't Borderlands is all. It's all about playing to upgrade your character to make them stronger. Right. So just for clarity's sake, a loot system is when you're playing a game and you kill someone and they drop items, and then you use the items that they drop to improve your character. And a lot of times with loot systems, what's dropped is randomized. So you never you're never quite sure. Yeah, right? it's, yeah, it's randomized. But then there's also you know the really tough enemy you can go after who has a higher chance of dropping something better. Right. Good to know they're going to be turning it off for you know, tournament play because obviously the people with the best gear have an unfair advantage. Yeah. In terms of how it just appeals to comic book fans, they're adding more stages. There'll be a new story. There's new characters. Um, we've seen Atrocitus, the Red Lantern. We've seen Supergirl. We've seen Gorilla Grodd. Very excited about Gorilla Grodd. I don't know if we've made it explicit on this podcast yet, but I mean, you, you have a weakness for talking apes. I guess I do. I, I didn't really realize it, but I love playing to the apes, and I... I... Gorilla Grodd, has, I just love the concept, and then when he showed up on the Flash TV series, man, that sold it for me. He was so great. What a great villain. Which is probably why they're putting him in the game. It's probably why Supergirl is there, too. Like they want to highlight all these cool franchises. Atrocitus is a bit of a, an odd addition, because he's, he's a Red Lantern, who's all rage-based, but he's not a very well-known character by any stretch of the imagination. Like, even within the comic book community, he had his own comic for a little while, but, I mean, that's not saying much. Yeah, but, I mean, how many Green Lantern villains are there that are, I mean, there's Sinestro, and yeah. then... That's true, but do you need yeah. another Green Lantern villain? Well, if you've got Sinestro, what it, else do you need? Well, if they're branching everyone out, it's yeah. like, you know, they want to expand all their franchises. I mean, Green Lantern and Sinestro were both in Injustice, and there were costumes to play as more than one Green Lantern. You could play you play as Hal Jordan by default, I think, and then John... John Stewart? John Stewart. That yeah. was it. Was a, had an optional... Like, again, just a costume was just an aesthetic choice, but... So you could play as that Green Lantern if you preferred him. And they also had the, you know, like the Sinestro Corps, Hal Jordan, and the, this is something that happens with comic books. <laughs> Everyone can dress up in their different outfits from their different runs. Honestly, that's half the appeal of the game to me. I'm not really into fighting games, but the uh, just the, the ability to unlock these different costumes for them was something that made me want to keep playing it. I can't even explain why, but yeah, I feel the same way. Like, <laughs> it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't change the characters. It doesn't it change so, the game. But when you could but play man. as the evil Superman and give him the Hank Henshaw skin, right. so that he was like the side 
Cyborg <laughs> Superman. Oh, I was all over that day one download. I don't even remember if it cost anything. <laughs> I, just, I had to have it because I wanted to play as that character because I loved him so much. And I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of the DC Captain Marvel, but I've got these really specific tastes for him, and I hated the new 52 version of him, which was like the default version. With so the hood, just, right? Yeah, and the weird glowy lightning bolt on his chest. Ugh, ugh, bugged me so much. So I just wanted to play until I could unlock the, the version where he just looked like the Captain Marvel that I know and love, you know? Yeah. Ugh. There's something about putting a franchise in like this. I mean, it, a lot of fan service, and there's room for that. Mm-hmm. But NetherRealm is also known for making a great game as well. So we don't know much about it yet, but these guys have a solid track record for games. We know that this is going to be a solid fighting game. It's going to be a blast to play, and with DC comic superheroes. Yeah. So, looking forward to that. So, number three is uh, an RPG that's going to... Uh be a sequel to one that came out a couple years ago. This one, I, I'm going to have a really hard time saying this title out loud. It's South Park, The Fractured Butthole. <laughs> it's two words, the fra- butthole. But yes, there's an obvious intended pun. Um, <laughs> geez. This was, uh, it was, I think it was made by Obsidian, but published by Ubisoft in 2014. It was South Park, The Stick of Truth. Right. Uh, it was a turn-based role-playing game. Very much fantasy, uh, Lord of the Rings, Dungeons & Dragons. But in the vein of the kids from South Park yeah. playing that. Now, like, everybody knows what South Park is. Like it's you know, Most people see it as that tasteless comedy show. <laughs> Usually that tastelessness is done with a purpose to make an ironic political point. Yeah. Which I think they do really well. Um, they can be really sharp on that. Show. Yeah, they they, they had the they had the episode where the the Indian casino was coming to force all the white rednecks off of their land. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, they, they they go to some efforts to make some points, and when they do it well, they do it really well. It's just also couched in all this fart humor. Mm-hmm. The video game, The Stick of Truth, carried that off perfectly in such a way that if you think of the Quantic Dream games as an interactive movie, this was an interactive episode of South Park. Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly, there were something like three episodes of the TV show that tied into the video game. That sort of led into, yeah. They're, yeah. yeah. And it, bringing all that stuff, like they, they, you know, they had a Lord of the Rings-themed episode on the show, so the characters they're playing, and like they're playing, literally, like, a, like kids playing on the street yeah. with wooden swords and like little outfits and stuff, but you're still playing it as if it were a fantasy adventure. Right. Um, it was a blast. And this sequel, the the fractured butthole, <laughs> which is a riot, it goes in, and it's tying into the superheroes thing they've done on the show. Yeah, uh, you know, Cartman as the coon as his Batman parallel, you know, parallel. Right. Um, and they're doing a whole thing based essentially making fun of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, so obviously that is that is pressing our buttons very Definitely. hard. The trailer had references to the Captain America Civil War. They had references to the Daredevil Netflix series. It's just like all this stuff. And they even took shots at the, the seeming failures of the DC Universe to, to uh, match the Marvel one in the movie. Yeah, when, when they don't want to play with Cartman anymore and they go to form their own thing. And he's yeah. like, well, fine, go on, DC Comics. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's the the premise is that they're, they they want to be superheroes to make superhero movies to make a super to make a billion dollars. Yeah, and you <laughs> play as a character, a customized character in this world. It looks like it's going to be a ton of fun. Um, there are like, on the gameplay side again. There's been a lot, some improvements to it. The the first game was criticized. Like the combat was really very easy. Uh, um, sure, I I'd agree with that. Yeah, it was very like there wasn't much to it. It's your turn. You your character does this and does this much damage to the enemy, and then you win. It was very much like a classic Super Nintendo ish uh, RPG style in that way, where it's incredibly turn based. And uh, although I guess like the difficulty 
wasn't there. Yeah, the I, difficulty wasn't there, and it wasn't very complex. They're no. turning it up a little in this one. Um, combat now has a grid system where like you're, you know, you want to place your strong characters in the front and like your weaker characters in the back, like the ones who have the ranged abilities, that right. sort of thing. They're trying to make it more interesting. They also mentioned just that age-old RPG problem where you interact with the world. When combat starts, you enter like an arena. Mm-hmm. That's an approximation of where you were. They're saying they want to wipe that out and just make it a natural fit. Interesting. So they are tuning up the game. So in terms of it being a video game, it looks like they're making it better, and this one should outdo the last. But really what we're all excited about is just playing in this world with these characters is always a blast. Yeah. The like the South Park character, their shtick lately seems to have been like the kids are just playing and inadvertently affect a bigger issue in real life that they still see through the lens of these fourth graders right. playing, but it makes a larger point and the adults always get drawn into it for strange reasons. So seeing like how that's gonna happen through these kids playing superheroes, and man, some of the superheroes like the Coon and Mysterion we've seen in the show, but I think Kyle is the human kite. Yeah, and uh, and Craig is Super Craig, so he's just Craig, but more. Yeah, but more, which is so suits who Craig is right. on the television show. <laughs> it, it, it looks it looks like it's a blast, and you can tell that part of it is that the people making it love the source material and are the source material. Yeah, Matt and Trey, the Parker, the the guys behind it, who really have a really impressive resume at this point, like South Park and the Book of Mormon, and like yeah. all this incredible Team stuff. America, Team America, all this incredible stuff that they've done. Like they were super heavily involved in the first game, and they're in on this. Like the developers of the game have said, they sort of act like creative directors, but also they're writing most of it. You can definitely tell that though, because it feels like an episode. Not only does it look like an episode of the show, the style is it's, perfect. Yeah, it's spot on, spot on. Uh, but it also the, everything about it, the the way the characters talk, the way they interact, it's just like the show, and you don't get that. With every piece of licensed material. No, very rarely, in fact. Usually you'll see, like, they'll develop their own art style. Yeah. Uh, that resembles what the show is like. Do you remember the South Park game on the N64? Oh, yeah. It was 3D, yeah. but in that ye old 3D where everything <laughs> was a little polygonal and a little strange. It was a first-person... Yeah. Like, I remember, like, it was, it was like a snow... snowballs. Yeah, at each other. And, it, like, I mean, you could tell, like, they had the right voice actors, but didn't really seem to have anything to do with South Park. No. This like this game has had like Stick of Truth had everything to do with South Park. It was like this N sixty four game. It, it was like they took a game and put South Park on it. Yeah, and this they've taken South Park and tried to put a game into it, and that works a lot better, in my opinion. And I, part of the reason I liked the the first game, Stick of Truth, is because. It, because of how simple it was, it was easy to play the game and enjoy the story and get the, to the jokes. Yeah, you were never struggling to progress through the gameplay. Which yeah. is fine, because the gameplay wasn't that complex. It was just a vehicle to take you through this story, this experience. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what it plays like if they, since it sounds like they're upping the difficulty and adding more video game mechanics to it. But I, I'm on board. I mean, this definitely hits me right in the, the my soft target you know all the superhero stuff is, is perfect for me but yeah um as, if you haven't tried it try stick of truth it is south park so you know if calling a game the fractured butthole like <laughs> if that offends you this isn't the game for you no definitely not no that's probably the tamest joke there will be in this game oh by far number so- two Yeah, number two, we're going to uh, VR land here, virtual reality, to talk about a Star Trek game. You know, this is a game that the first thing I thought about it when I watched the trailer was 
This is something I never knew I wanted. But now I have to have. Have to have it. I, I mean, money is almost no object. I must play this game. Which is kind of a big deal in this case. All right. Let's yeah. before we get to that, let's do a little describing of it. Yeah. So VR has recently been reintroduced to the world of video games. It's and it's already the market's already been divided. But it's 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 not the VR you remember when we were kids in the '90s. It's not polygons. It's it's having a realistic world projected into your face from a mask. Right. There hasn't really been a really good way to do that. Like, you can't do that with other people, and it's weird to do in a game environment. This is the perfect setup for it. This is Ubisoft's Star Trek bridge crew, where, listen, you know who's on the bridge of the ship. What this is, it's linked VR for four players. One person's the captain, one person's the helm, one is engineering, one is tactical, and you work together to you know, have a Star Trek episode. It looks... So good. And the way they promoted it is they got Jerry Ryan and LeVar Burton. Seven of nine from Voyager. And LeVar Burton. Jordy LaForge from Star Trek The Next Generation. And Carl Urban. Dr. McCoy from the Star Trek movies. The New Bones. Yeah. And they tried it out and they absolutely had a blast. And one of the things, like, I I like Voyager. I like the new movies. Uh, And so it was nice to see them. But, you know, Dr. McCoy's never on the bridge. Seven of Nine never has a fun time. So here, but but Jordy, LeVar Burton was talking just like Jordy. It was such a blast from the past. Hearing him on the bridge, issue orders, tell people what he's doing. Ah, it was like, it was like he became Jordy again. It's the best. How this game is going to work is, you know, you're going to, like, the way they talk, the demo here is that the ship answers a distress signal. And you go and you try to rescue these people, but then you're attacked by Klingons. And if it was a video game, you'd take the controller and you'd steer the ship and you'd until the crosshair went over the Klingons and you'd pull the trigger. But you don't do that here. Tacticals didn't do that. But to do that, Helm has to fly them up close. Yeah. And to do that, engineering has to make sure there's enough power going to... So you four people have to work together. Right, and it's like, not like any one of them can do that on their own. You need the captain in the chair, Captain Kirk, if you will, issuing the orders. Like, Helm, turn us to do this. Uh, and, and, which, and which isn't just a button. That's you telling the person yeah. playing Helm to do it. Ugh. Who then looks down in their virtual reality environment under their control panel and presses the buttons. Like, and you all have to work together to drive this ship and pass this Star Trek episode. Oh, it's it's lo- what a wonderful idea. What yeah. a great way to sell this. It's like people worry about if a holodeck was created, like a place that can create virtual environments for you to interact in, you'd never leave. I, I think this might be a problem for me. I may never take the VR goggles off once I start playing this yeah, game. So you might have to say goodbye to your wife. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah hey, she could be at helm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a blast. The trick is how you're going to play it. VR is pretty expensive. Right. Um, you need a powerful computer rig right now, like Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive are the big ones. Um, it is all the, well, it might be the cheapest option. It is also coming out for PlayStation VR, uh, which I think... It seems like it's going to run on the current PlayStation 4s, but it'll run a lot better on the PlayStation 4.5s. So you're going to have to spend 700 bucks to get a PlayStation, and then another 400 bucks to get a, a headset, and then whatever yeah. much money the game costs. So now you're at $1,500. And then if you and, want people to come over. Yeah, and then all those other three people need to have it too. <laughs> or you need to have bought them for them to be able to come over and play. <laughs> Which, in our case, that might be... <laughs> we might have to work <laughs> but. Yeah, so it's not going to be easy to play, and it's not going to be cheap, but what a great idea. Yeah. It's, I, ha- I will point out that in the demo, all we saw was the J.J. Abrams first Star Trek. I'm not necessarily against that. I like the design of those ships, 
But man, if they do that, and you're gonna have the classic Enterprise D bridge. Oh my god, from Star Trek: Next Generation. Yep, that's pretty cool. A big part of that experience is immersed. Like we, as cool as it would be to be a helmsman, that's not what really it's about. It's about being the helmsman on a Federation starship. That immersion is important. Yeah, and making it the bridge of that ship. Even yeah, just a galaxy class ship. But, like, of the beige and the sort of the wood. Yeah, and the, the tactical thing where it comes up behind them, yeah. behind the, the, the captain and the commander. I Oh, man, you're right. I might never take it off. <laughs> it's, I, it sounds, I mean, in terms of a gameplay experience, it sounds like a really fun way to play a game with four friends. Yeah, it sounds and, like the next step of Rock Band, you know? it was Rock Band was a lot of fun. You'd have people come over and one person would sing, one person would drum, you got a bass player and a guitarist, but you all work together to make a piece of music. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. That is a great example that's like the closest thing we've probably had to this recently like it's to date yeah and it it would just be the next step it would be you know you wouldn't actually have a a toy guitar in your hands you'd have these gloves on but you'd be able to see yourself on the bridge and you're you wouldn't be talking into a headset necessarily to give orders you would be just turning to your friend ah can't wait yeah now, to be clear, they've announced the game will work for local co-op for four players, which is definitely the best way to do it. Yeah. But it can also be done online, so if your friends can't come over with their expensive rigs and headsets, you can do it that way. And you can play it solo, and NPCs will fill in the other chairs, but I can't imagine that would be any fun at all. No. Like, that's, like clearly the highlight is to be working with your friends to do this. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm signed up for this. I have wanted to be on the bridge of a starship my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> definitely. And, like, just this is by far the closest approximation of it. I didn't even consider it would be possible. Yeah. It was, like I said, it's as soon as I saw it, it's like I've wanted this my whole life and I didn't even know it. So, admittedly, that might be Geek Top 5's best takeaway, but I think the number one from the show and what people are really agreeing on, top of the list, uh, the new Legend of Zelda game, Breath of the Wild, we finally saw. Been in development for a long time. Nintendo finally came out to show it to people. It looks fantastic, Mm -hmm. and it looks different, which is big news for the Zelda universe, for Nintendo even. I mean, I'm not a a big Zelda uh, aficionado or whatever, but... It, it seemed it seemed different, but also a throwback, you know? It seemed sort of like uh, Ocarina of Time, where there's a bit more freedom to explore, but maybe... Well, see, me. that's the thing. Like, Zelda takes place in a very large world, but ever since the ones even on classic Nintendo, they're kind of restricted. If you think of Ocarina of Time, you can't really wander around that world. You start mm. the game in the forest, you can't leave the forest until you beat the forest dungeon. Then you have to go to the castle because you can't. Like, the only other place you can go is the mountain, but they won't let you up the mountain until you've been to the castle. So right. Like, okay. It's a big world, but they very much direct you where to go in it. Go to new area, new dungeon, get an item, go to the next area, figure out what the problem is, go to the dungeon, get the item, go to the next area. And this is is yeah. definitely clearly an open world. This thing. is they've, not that. This they've is... even said that you can uh, fight the final boss as, as soon as you start the game. You might not beat him. You might not. You will probably not beat him. Yeah, and you won't get the story, but it's an option. That's how open world it is. Yeah, this is a giant open world, and with so many new features, it has. It, I know it sounds silly, but they've added a jump button to this one, which is a huge transition. Really, like I mean, you could jump in previous Zelda games, but there literally was not a jump button it was an automatic action mm. you'd tilt link and if he walked towards a river he would try to jump over it they're giving you more control over this character now now he's climbing things and jumping over things and you know, where his being positioned is a lot more important there's gear with stats 
Like, there's different color tunics that Link could wear in the past. If you wanted to go into the Fire Mountain, you'd have to get the magical red outfit. Right. To protect you from the heat. And you're like, you're... you're... Long shot, there were different ones that like you, you would upgrade it slightly so it could go a little further. Yeah. In this case, this is more like a sort of a, what do you think of a Western RPG? Like you get the wooden sword and it does three damage, and then you get the bronze sword and it does four damage. So it's like you, you upgrade, you upgrade your shields, you upgrade. Like at one point, we see him in the trailers wearing a full suit of armor. Mm. There's like this all these like new features to it. Like another link used to restore his health you find the little hearts when you yeah. found one it went into your your bar of life now you actually find and prepare food and you know if you prepare food it's better than eating the food raw and food that's been there for too long maybe that actually has a negative impact like they're adding sort of this survival system to it yeah and it seems like it, it they're taking a page from skyrim or the some yeah of the a lot of open games. world stuff yeah. and they've never done anything like that the legend of zelda has been a winning formula for 20 years longer yeah, they just it always sells enough, and it's a very similar game. Despite, like they always throw in a new gimmick. In this one, you control the wind and sail around. In mm-hmm. this one, you go back and forth in time. In this one, you turn into a wolf sometimes. <laughs> it, it which sounds funny. It was actually pretty cool. Um, but now they're changing up the formula, and everyone's really excited and kind of shocked because Nintendo plays it safe. Yeah, until now. And uh, the other thing with Nintendo is they've always been. Aiming for for simpler stuff, right? Or like making it more uh, accessible, more family friendly. Where this seems more like a hardcore video game, yeah, like a seems, classic video. It game. seems to be appealing to people who are more intense about video gaming. Which I don't know. Maybe it's a sign of their demographic getting older, or but they still also want to appeal to new. I mean, who knows? Just someone decided it's time to shake things up, and they're doing it. Um, if that will be out soon. It's it's going to be released for the Wii U, which was a tough call since that console is at the end of its lifespan. But it's also going to be released as a launch title for Nintendo's next console, the NX, which we know absolutely nothing about. Which is sort of a strange decision. You figure yeah. they would announce you know the new <laughs> hardware here at E3, but it seems like they really wanted to draw attention to the the new Zelda and. I mean, you go, good call on their part because that's all anybody on the internet yeah, is talking. about. It really about. seemed like the that was the biggest news of the week. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that came out, but everyone was talking about Zelda. Yeah, if you want to be spoiled, they let a lot of people play it and put it up on the internet. So there's a lot of gameplay out there if you want to have a look. If you're like me and you kind of want to step back and just wait and experience for it for yourself. Just take the knowledge thing that it's coming. It looks like it'll be sometime next year. It's a big open world. It's going to be a, like a whole new adventure and a whole new way to play Zelda. It, it's, it's going to be so good. I'm so happy. <laughs> In any case, there were a bunch of other great stuff at the show. Um, there's a Skyrim remaster, Resident Evil 7, Last Guardian has a release date. Lots of other cool stuff. But these were the, the five highlights of things to look at. We'll be right back with our guest segment. Stay tuned. Welcome to the second half of Geek Top 5. Geek Top 5! This week, we're joined by Sonali, who brings us a list of the top five Mass Effect romances. So, uh, Sonali, what's Mass Effect? <laughs> because no one who listens to this knows what Mass Effect is. <laughs> so if you is. don't know what Mass Effect is, I don't know where you've been, uh, Mass Effect is probably probably one of the best and well-known like shooter RPG games that's come out for console in recent years, if I'm not Mistaken. It might be one of the few shooter RPGs, period. Right. It, um, yeah, it's like it and Deus Ex. Yeah. And the key, and one of the key things about this is that like as much fun as the shooter mechanics are and as much fun as the adventure is, 
a lot of it has to do with the character development. I guess you can describe it as sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, and with guns. Yeah, but it's not just like, you know, in most games, if you don't gun well enough, you die, and then you reload. In this, it's about your decisions and what you choose to do, and they can affect the people around you. So when you talk about a romance in Mass Effect, it's not just like, you know, you got to that part of the game where the guy gets the girl. There's a whole thing. There's a whole range of options of characters there for you to... To romance. Can we use that as a verb? Is that weird? Totally. Well, but I mean, it's just not not just romance. There's more to it, which is why I'm doing the list. Yeah, there's plenty of character <laughs> development. Anyway, let's let's hit it. What's what's at number five? All right. So at number five, I have Joker and Edie. Yeah, I, I like that you put this one on the list because this is one of the few romances that like your character yourself isn't directly involved with. You're playing matchmaker. Yeah, but they keep coming to you for advice. Right, right. So, I mean, so going with romance, too, like, I want to make it clear. Like, when I'm looking at romance, whether it's in movies or video games or wherever, whatever media I'm looking at, I want to see, you know, good chemistry. I want to see character growth. And I want to see some genuine emotions and play between people that are conversing with each other and, like, getting to know each other. So with Joker and Edie, like, I always found... You know, they had this, well, Edie being the AI that runs yeah, the that Normandy. Key fact of what's fun about right? this one. Yeah. And Joker, who was very, very anti sort of AI when he first found out and he did not trust her at all. And it was Mass Effect 2, really, that you kind of see that initial interplay with them. Yeah, Mass Effect 2, he gets the ship. And he, like, Joker, Seth Green, yeah. I mean, he's who plays Seth Green, uh, but he's that character, he's the character in every sci-fi who, like, loves his ship. Yeah. That's all he's about. And then in Mass Effect 2, he gets the ship with an AI on board. And he's and, feeling a little threatened. Yeah. But just a little. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> I believe there was an excellent joke. I don't want to ruin anything, because, I mean, if you haven't played it, I don't know where you've been, but and the excellent interchange and, and um, exchange and interplay with them. During that scene, so that was kind of, I think, for me, the the starting point of you know, you start by not liking someone so much now and then, and then you go <laughs> very, over and sort of the traditional approach to yeah. romance, Fred and prejudice, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. So droid and prejudice. I like that droid and prejudice. Yeah. So and then that's another aspect of it: the fact that you know they are kind of looking at sort of a human AI android robot exchange, like how they are trying to figure themselves out and how they're trying to figure out who they are together. It was very interesting. To yeah. Me. It was fun. Like, they're both coming to you for romantic advice, but Joker's is really traditional. I mean, with that overtone of, like, what do I do with the fact that, you know, she doesn't really have a body, um, but she comes Excuse to... Excuse me, she had a body. In Mass Effect 3, she gets the, the synthetic body. Yeah. But the part of that that's more fun is when Edie comes to you, all her questions about the relationship are couched in these big philosophical questions about what it means to be alive and to be human yeah, and stuff. It's very existential with her. Yeah. Because she's also still trying to figure out who she is as, you know, uh, an AI and as a person, quote-unquote. Yeah, and what does it mean for her right. to be alive? And the other thing about them is that they're neither of them quite fits in with the world. The Joker is physically disabled. He's like Mr. Glass and Unbreakable, where all his bones are very brittle and he's easily broken. And he's never quite fit in because of that. And Edie is like the only unshackled AI in in the the sphere, right? Other yeah, than this, bad guys. Yeah, in the sci-fi universe, yeah. there there are, they call them virtual intelligences, which is like what we have now with Siri and stuff, but full-fledged AI is still considered illegal, and she's kind of operating under the radar. 
that you know she impersonates one of those lower virtual intelligences a lot to get by. So now here's my question. I mean, I know this is only number five on your list, but how honest do you think Edie is in the relationship? Do you think she's got real emotions, or is she just like seeing how long this can play out? Is she running a program here to see what romance is all about? So I mean, she does say um, through the conversation she has with Shepard, like she's trying. She is able to adjust her programming once her shackles had been uh, brought off. So she is learning, but she's learning the way a young child would learn about emotion, right? Like she's kind of testing the waters and she's assimilating that. Well, that's a great word for a robot. <laughs> yeah. uh, assimilating that uh, experience and trying to, to figure it out. And then whatever she concludes with it, she's accepting that and moving forward with it. So, I mean, she comes to the point where she's like, cracking jokes and everything as well so for her to be able to do that and then come to you know what is love and what what does it mean to be with somebody who has brittle bone disease i believe was the something um, like that yeah, yeah. so um you know it's 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 a it's a childish sort of learning phase for her where, where she has to a lot of growing to do really mm. and she does it and even if you discourage the relationship in the game she still grows as a character and like learns how to interact with people like what she turns out as is a little bit different if you like if you know like she like worst case scenario she and joker remain just friends kind of but she still learns like what it means to really care about people which is a lot of fun to watch that's one of those things in science fiction that's always been a really fun thing to explore is the machine intelligence right and always kind of reassuring when it comes up pro-human. Yeah. That's not always very common. Well, and I, I was very interested in that dynamic. I was interested in the dynamic of having sort of a, a machine AI and a human romance. Like, what would that look like? And I think they hit the right notes with it because it was awkward and it was, you know, uncertain. And, and heavily was, couched in philosophy. Yeah. But it was also, you know, kind of cute and heartwarming because of their kind of both of them being kind of well, Joker is a bit more immature, I think, in some ways, just being who he is, and Edie just from the fact that she's trying to learn and figure. Yeah, she's it out. only technically a few months old. Right. right. With Joker, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah, and with her, she's just developing. All right, what's next? What's on number four? So on number four, I have Thane Krios. Ah, uh, yeah, the Lizard Man assassin with a ticking clock for how long he has left to live. <laughs> this one was so heartbreaking. Okay, so <laughs> when I played my first female playthrough, and I usually do like to do like a male and a female if I get a chance, so I did one female and I picked Thane, not knowing what I was getting myself into, and it like literally my heart, I could I could feel it bleeding <laughs> yeah. as I kept going into the romance story. Now, from the previously mentioned criteria like again it was kind of like a slow start so in mass effect 2 when you kind of are getting your suicide squad mission group together for um the end of the world as it were your galaxy i guess um pain is one of the uh, candidates for you to bring in and like with any squad member you go and you chat with them and you try and build a relationship Given the fact that he's an assassin, you're kind of nervous about even talking to him, really. I mean, he's literally a cold-blooded killer. Yes. Yeah, he's a reptile. Yeah. Oh, my God. But he's got this very, like, calm, sort of religious thing going on about it. That's really compelling. Like he's, I mean, he's, he's interesting as far as an assassin goes. He doesn't match the traditional template. I don't know. He, he... 
distanced himself from the fact that he was an assassin, it, like from a, in a philosophical level that I couldn't quite get behind. You know, mm. like justifying what he did as a, as a, a hired killer and saying that it didn't make him a killer, that he was just the tool. I don't know if right. I bought that. It was hard to for me to even imagine a romance with him but, after but something like that. But that's sort of part of what the the romance builds, right? Okay. You sort of he talks about like like. I mean, like with your character. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. So, you, you know, we start with him having what Graham just mentioned, that sort of, you know, I'm just a tool of murder, I guess, and I, it's not really me. But then as you progress with talking to him and, and you kind of bring your insight to him, he starts to kind of change his mind about himself. And he's also kind of starting to get into this new experience of, you know, another female of his species that is kind of in command right now with him and, you know, just connecting with him on a different level than he is used to. Now, I wanted to mention that he has the the ability to remember everything. I forget what the... Yeah, an didactic memory. Mm. Right. So uh, with that too, like he can live through everything. So coming to the point where he's going into this big sort of epic adventure, knowing everything and remember everything, like what that does to him as he progresses, like he starts to question who he has been and who he's becoming, um, which makes the end of what happens with them. Yeah, let's let's not skirt around the elephant in the room. Spoiler alert, he dies. No matter what you do. Not well either. Just Well, he depending what you do, he can die heroically. Um, but he okay. still dies. I just mean as Sorry. as a person in the other half of the relationship with him, it was very traumatic and yeah. I felt it because I I was very interested in in the story arc between these two characters. Like they had Interesting conversations. It was the question of their philo- his philosophy versus you know what. However, you played uh, Commander Female Shepherd as you did, um, and what their discussion was, and then finding out that you know he's got this uh, terminal illness and it's going to happen eventually, but not really expecting it to happen. I mean, the the thing that stuck with me at the end was much more heartbreaking. Was when he is gone, you get these messages from him. This, yeah, the recordings he leaves for you that you watch after the funeral. And it's mm. like just salt in a wound that you're trying to get over. Uh, my character wakes up alone in her bed before the big mission. And it's yeah. like the impact of that moment was very powerful for me. And it was a great romance, partially. And really brave on the part of the writers. Like any other game, they would have like, you know, and then they lived happily ever after for the few years they have left. Right. In this case, he dies and there's still so much more of the game left. And yeah, what you're describing, that scene right before the end of Act 3, when the character wakes up alone and is just lying in bed looking at the empty space, that, that was terrible. Yeah, that was heart-wrenching. And, and again, I think it, it played really well from how both of their interactions progressed into their characters you know, growing and changing. So. Mm-hmm. Especially if you play the relationship really well and, like, you reconnect him with his son. Right. And, right. and so he'll... Sh- so that's the other thing. He he, he had a wife who died, right? Yeah, who yeah. died so previously. Does that... I don't know. Does that taint this romance a little? The fact that you're, you're silver medal, maybe? Or, like, uh, stepmom? Not so much. I mean, I found, like, his description of his previous... Well, he's guilty. He feels guilty because he essentially believes she died because of who he is, like, because of his... Uh, yeah, she was targeted because right, of him. because he was an mm. assassin. So, um, I mean, as 
playing as Shepard while I was there. Like, I, I didn't really think, you know, it wasn't like I was the second woman or anything like that, but... Even though he has this didactic memory and he can, like, compare you two at the same time. <laughs> yeah, but that isn't the point, right? It's a very different relationship that I'm having as Shepard with him. Okay. As opposed to what he had with his wife. Like, that that's going to stay and be his sort of married life, love story, whatever they had. That's going to be for him. Like, I'm not really involved with that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in that regard, I'm not really thinking about his previous wife. I mean, I feel bad for him that she died the way she did. But, hey, then I get pain. So, <laughs> so it works out for you, albeit temporarily. Yeah. Well, not really well either, let's say. Okay, so Joker and Edie, they were in all three of the games, right? Yeah. And, uh... Well, Edie shows up in two. So, oh, sorry, okay. Joker's in one. Edie shows right. up in two. Okay, and Thane showed up in two as well. Right. And he's also in three, right? Yep. Yes. Yeah, okay. So now, who would, who do we have next? So, in uh, the number three position, I have Tali Zora. Yeah. So, Tali was also a very interesting character. Now, as one of, like you just mentioned, as one of the characters that was in all three games from beginning to end... Um, she had, I think, a little bit more time to grow as a as a character. Um, and then, now if I recall correctly, she was not an option in... You can, like, you befriend her in Mass Effect 1, but that's as far as it goes. And then you can further it through 2 and then end up together in 3. So what I remember from Tally is, like, at the start, too, if she's... When she's uh, discovered as a, as a squad mate, she's very young she's very sort of new to the the world she's actually on her pilgrimage i understand from uh yeah her species are a very closeted xenophobic race they're kind of like the um, the amish in that they stay in a community but then they send their when the kids reach a certain age they go out to see what the world is like but in this case they also have to bring something back to get readmitted to the, to yeah. the society so she's off doing that when you discover her and she gets you know caught up in this big like you know intergalactic conspiracy thing happening mm -hmm. Unintentionally. Right. I mean, but. it's also like the Quarians have a lot more, you know, problematic history with losing their home world and stuff. So, I mean, we won't get into that too much. So. But, yeah, but they're they're very xenophobic. They don't generally, yeah. you know, you know, they don't talk to non-Quarians mm -hmm. and the other races aren't too fond of them either. Yeah. And their pilgrimage is actually a necessity thing, like you're saying. Like they need the, the next generation to go out and prove their worth. So they return with something that will help the fleet. Yeah. Um, as they're all living on ships. Uh, yeah, they're doing a Battlestar Galactica, essentially. Right. So they they need them to come back and prove their worth as someone who can um, be part of the society and contribute to it. Right. So about the romance. <laughs> like she... <laughs> right, Mass Effect. So... Well, one of the intriguing things about the romance for me is that she... It, the, that species, because they are so isolated and so confined to their ships, they can't be out of their suits for fear of getting... Right. Uh, sick or whatever so you never see her out of the suit you never see what the Quarians look like outside of their their outfits yeah there's it's no such a puzzle there's no physical attraction in a way no. they're always fully suited well I mean the suit is uh, it's form fitting let's it's, put okay. it that way <laughs> that's fair I mean but then you also see that she's got like the flipper hands so it's it's hard to objectively <laughs> judge a lady like that all right. So, and we're not looking at physical appearances here. Certainly either. not. But not very literally in this case. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, now with Tally, as we progress, she also turns into the sort of badass kind of in command. Yeah. Um, she gets a lot of responsibility right. and become and, yeah, and grows up and a little. She grows, right. And then, so when her romance starts with 
with Shepard. Um, there's a lot of awkwardness on her part. Like, I think at one point there's also that sense of, you know, she's already starting to like him, but it doesn't, like, want to say anything and doesn't really want to do anything with it. So when Shepard kind of puts himself out there, um, that's when things start to get interesting because she is, again, a person kind of outside her comfort zone already in the galaxy, and now she's got this sort of feelings that she has to deal with on top of that for somebody else it's it's adorable and you feel bad for her at the same time like, yeah. you, you know if you if you come on too strong she just sort of starts babbling <laughs> and then starts babbling about how she's babbling and then right. i would say like i loved the part of that romance for her because it is the most realistic i mean i don't know about you guys but Anytime there was a, like a romance in our lives, like it, it's been, you know, nothing's been straightforward, nothing makes sense, mm. and you kind of have to muddle through it to figure it out. So yeah. that's that's what I, I I love the fact that it was so much more realistic in some ways, um, a, a true romance in, in such a way. All right, number two. All right, so um, I feel a little sad this is on number two. I can't believe you didn't make it number <laughs> I, one. I know. I, it was number one. Anyway. You, you have his picture up in our bedroom. <laughs> you don't have to tell people that. Um, so number two is Garrus Vicarian. The Archangel. The Archangel. So he was number one on my list, truth be told. But while I was kind of reviewing this uh, as well, you know, just to be fair to my own criteria, he did drop to number two for that. So um, Garrus Vicarian is a hotshot, hot-headed Turian who you first meet in Mass Effect 1. He's part of CSEC, the police force on the Citadel. Yeah, but he's a, he's a frustrated cop. He right. doesn't like to work within the system. He's chafing against the rules. Right. Yeah. So he has that personality, essentially, where he's kind of frustrated and he doesn't know what to do. So for him, joining the the crew of the Normandy in the first one is sort of a, a chance to make things right. So he's not a romance option there, but you do get a sense for his character in the first game, you know? Um, he, he is trying to make a difference, um, and you're not entirely sure if he's going the right way to do it. Yeah, a big part of the, you know, it's not, not a romantic relationship, but the relationship in Mass Effect 1, you can influence him and either, like, you know, do what you want, or I understand you're frustrated, but there's a reason we have rules. Now, of course, regardless what you do, by Mass Effect 2, he ends up being Space Batman. Right. right. So that's what happens but, in Mass So, I mean, as a girl, which I'm going to say this, um, as... No, I get it. Space start, Batman. Um, How could you say no? In Mass Effect 2, you have this entire thing with him where he comes out, reveals himself as this badass, sniping, archangel-like character who's you know, saving the world in his own way. And it's amazing. But it's also, you know, his growth at that point. Like, he isn't that unsure, frustrated um, Turian you met in the first game. He's more confident, but he's also more mature because he's learned from his mistakes as well. I think uh, in one of the... Uh, one of his missions, rather, there's a incident where um, his, squad, his squad has been taken out. Right. Um, his squad was betrayed. Right. And he wants revenge. And, but, and then, like, do you kill the guy or do you right. not kill the guy? So this, that was a pivotal sort of moment. And then from that point on, you kind of get back on track and you can kind of start... I, I love the interaction with Garrus. That was one of the biggest things for me because when you talk with him, it's never... Uh, it, it's like a dance. It's always like a dance, and that's going to become important after. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, you're having a conversation with him. There's a lot of uh, wit and wordplay, and they're just 
fun kind of conversation. So the romance with him is always playful and it's, uh, you know, you, 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 it makes you feel good just, just to <laughs> speak with him. Unlike the Thane one, which... <laughs> which, yeah, which was painful. I mean, wonderful and, and kind of, you hold on to it. Different but. romances are different ways. Yeah. This one is an exciting one. Right. It's, you know, it's an action-packed one in a way. Even when he's flustered... He's still got something clever to say, and the banter between him and the female shepherd is always a riot. And I guess that segues into that next thing. Right. So, you, have, you have the option for going on the, the pretend we just met date. So that was Mass Effect 3. Yeah. Um, they, they do this whole scene where, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, come, you know, we'll pretend and have some fun because God knows we don't get time to do it while we're trying to save the galaxy. And he just, he can't quite get it because he's a Turian. Uh, and then he pulls Shepard up, and there is music playing, and they start to do a tango, which is a little shaky at first, but once you get going, you have decisions to make on how you're going to play it as well. And it's just beautiful. It's, there is, I don't know how to describe it. I'm having, like, it, blushing moments right I, now. I can so. see, yeah. No, um, it's, it's an expression of his confidence. Right. Like he starts to Like, he starts to, to waffle on the banter a little, and Shepard's kind of teasing him about it. But then he just goes all in and drags her onto the dance floor and literally knocks her off her feet. Uh, and we all know Shepard can't dance. So just right. to have her kind of match him in this, like that that's one of the things I always found too. Because throughout the, the series, they actually make a very... They're very pointedly saying that, you know, she has no ability to dance. Everyone gets to make fun of her. Yeah, it's a running gag in the series that the protagonist can't dance. And then you have this thing where, you know, she she feels good with him. She feels more capable and, and herself. So... Um, when you are in Mass Effect 3, like, uh, depending on who you've romanced and they haven't died, um, you, can, <laughs> you can get to sort of have a little farewell before you go to the, the end mark for it. And that, that always felt like, you know, everyone's injured, everyone's exhausted, and they have an exchange with, like, enemies and, you know, their friends fighting for their lives. And it's, it's you're only focused on them during that when they say they're sort of witty sad oh device. and that's the whole like if you get up there before me i'll meet you at the bar that conversation right. yeah so yeah. you know it's done on the ship before um the shuttle rather before they take off and shepherd kind of ditches garris and you know basically tells him to have a good life so and the other thing with with garris is correct me if i'm wrong but isn't he the the character who's around the most in all three games i mean assuming he survives through them all he's also like, he's also one of the characters who can go from 1 to 3 of the characters who stretch over all three games he's probably the one you're playing with the most yeah um, both in terms because of his utility as a character and because of his contributions to the story i mean the only other one i can think of that even comes close is probably tally it would be well tally garris and liara are well, the liara doesn't have much to do in number 2 she's really just in like that side quest right yeah but that side quest is 4 hours long Right, but in a, what, 40-hour game, that's, yeah. that doesn't... No, I hear what you're saying, yeah. but yeah, so Garrus, is, he's there a lot, and if you choose to pursue that relationship between Garrus and if you're playing a female shepherd, there's a lot of interaction and a lot of time for it to develop. There's, there's the whole bit in 3, when they go up to the roof of the Presidium and compete to see who's the better shot. Right. Like that's, and like you, in the end, you have the option of letting him win... <laughs> And it's hard to tell which is the more romantic thing to do. <laughs> and again, if you're playing the male shepherd, then it's just a bromance moment. Right. 
Same deal, though. But yeah, but yeah, Garrus is hard to turn down. Yeah, and I mean, again, with him, it's it, it's always about the conversations, too, that you have with each and every person. And they're very unique. I always found that interesting, that whether it's Tally or Garrus, like... Yeah, the writers did a fantastic yeah, job. Yeah, and, and that's, what, that's what makes it, because you are kind of talking to a different person every time. So um, each of their little quirks, like their specific things with Tally's um, romantic movie song and Garrus's, you know, let's settle this, who's the better <laughs> shot scene. It's, it's very unique for each person all right so so number one the number one romance in mass effect (laughs) so the number one romance in mass effect is with liara sassoni so she was actually number two like i said before garris was number one for me so the reason i switched it is um there are actually a couple reasons so one is liara even though you were saying graham like it's um, you know, she's not really an option in two. She is the most consistent uh, character that you can be with in throughout, throughout the whole series in all three games. So you can start romancing Liara in number one. Mm-hmm. Um, she does have that um, DLC that you do with her. Yeah. And if you do two. it, like, you can end up like, going on the date with her in two. Right. So you try so, to rebuild the relationship after yeah. what happens. So I'm technically counting that as part right. of the romance. Um, and of course she's in number three so she's the only character in the series I believe who you can romance consistently throughout and it you know you see her character growth as you're going through it as well so when you meet her in Mass Effect 1 she's this awkward awkward seems to be a very important word for romances yeah. <laughs> um, awkward kind of nerdy into her own world likes to be alone yeah character. she's the intellectual she's you know, the young talented scientist who doesn't really know how to handle people at all so you meet her and you save her and um you know she's also trying to fix she comes into this world with Shepard where you know you're dealing with much bigger issues and problems than just rusty old runes or uh, trying to figure out you know where you are in the world so as you talk with her as you progress with her it it goes from being awkward you you see her change um from again a girl kind of person to a female Mm -hmm. strong woman kind of character now that's a little different in her case like in between Mass Effect 1 and 2 she undergoes some tragedies in her life and she changes dramatically right so, whereas with some of the other characters, you might influence that change. In this case, this change happens without you, and which makes it really interesting for the relationship. Like you know, when you see her again in two, she's a much different person. She's very confident. She's very strong and kind of cynical. Hmm. I guess like you know the, the way a cynical person would say like she's grown up a lot, <laughs> and maybe yeah, well, what you because of what you've done in one, you've become an inspiration for her, but. It's much more of an interesting character in two and three, I found, than she was in one. In one, she was almost like, she seemed sort of like the default romance option. Right. Like, you know, she was just like, such a big, scary universe out there, and I hope some big, strong protagonists can help me. No, I, I disagree with that, though. Because I, I find her species, the Asari, they're never just shown as someone who... who they're in distress. I mean, they're, they're an all-female race, I believe. So, well, they're they're non-gendered, but they right. appear female. I didn't know how to phrase that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, because of that, I mean, there's this love for them in the entire galaxy that's hinted at. But she never comes off that way. And you're right. Like with her individual kind of, she had her own tragedies that were separate that you know she dealt with by herself and and how she became from there so coming into mass effect 3 then you see her you know as a confident person who's a little world weary i think and yeah. then when you kind of 
you know, it's awkward because Shepard was kind of away with Cerberus for uh, Mass Effect 2, so there isn't a lot of connection. But once you do start getting connected with her again in Mass Effect 3, there's a lot of sort of, you know, we had a good time before, and, you know, where are we now? Where are we going from this? So there's a lot of depth there of, um, of character from each individual as well as together in their relationships. Just to go back to what Jesse was saying about her sort of being the default option and one, as a male player, your options for a romance are either her or a racist. So <laughs> you don't, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of choices there. I think the the man, if you play as a, a female shepherd, the Caden, right? Yeah. He is a better choice than, than well, Ashley is for yeah, the, Ashley the male Ashley in Mass Shepard. Effect 1, like, redeeming her character and showing her why she's wrong <laughs> is the thing in Mass Effect 1. I mean, she's obviously not on the list. Like, I didn't think it was that strong. Like, I think right. we all agree on that. Yeah. But that yeah. is a popular option. A lot of people yeah. like Ashley. Man, that was always like, whoa, <laughs> hold your horses. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting thing that you say that uh, as a... Um, you know, the option for default. Because I found Caden and Ashley were there as the default. So part of the reason they're not on here is because I didn't see there uh, there was a lot of depth with mm. them in their rom- romances. Especially when you get, like, dumped by them unceremoniously in Mass Effect 2 when you come back from being dead. I just, I, I didn't know what to <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah, that was sort of a rough... Yeah, yeah, so, and then in 3 you can kind of patch things up. But there wasn't... You know, I didn't find a lot of character growth mm-hmm. with them separate. Like, again, things happen with them separately, but you can't reconnect with them the same way as you can with the other people mm-hmm. on this list. So, Interesting note, those are the human characters who we're not interested in. And the other four people, <laughs> number one, two, three, that Shepard can romance on your list, all of them alien species. Now, to be fair, when I played through, I ended up with Miranda, who's like the super hot, kind of mean... Uh, the femme fatale. The femme fatale. Uh, okay. How can you resist? But I was a little disappointed. I, I, you know, I was with Liara in one, and then you know Miranda showed up, and I was like, "Sorry, Liara." And uh, so, <laughs> but then in three, it happened to me. Like Miranda's barely in three, and I was like, "I'm staying loyal to this." What? I've got nothing over here. So, <laughs> she barely that shows was up. It. Like I found Miranda was kind of like, you know what? I got ditched by everyone else. Let's just, you know. This is my option here, and she felt like she was the default option for Mass Effect 2 as well. She was the one in all, like, the trailer material. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, she also had, she had growth of her own as well, I think, going from Mass Effect 2 to Mass Effect 3, but none of it really had to do, again, with sort of Shepard in, in that their relationship wasn't building anywhere. Yeah, not that she doesn't grow as a character very right. much. Right. Now, not to do a disservice to Liara, like... You know, I didn't mean to say that, you know, she doesn't need you. Like, like the, the relationship works up really well together. And, and for fans who are interested in where the series are going, there's still that weird moment, if you're in a relationship with Liara right at the end of 3, where she does something, like, telepathic to his brain that we don't really know what's going on. And in my head, I've always compared that to that scene in Wrath of Khan, uh, where Spock... Puts, Remember. Yeah, that. So there might be something there, um... There's another reason, but but yeah, my choice. I end up with my actual. Play- I mean, I've done a lot of playthroughs. I really love Mass Effect, <laughs> but in my actual playthrough, I ended up with Liara. It seemed like the most natural fit. Continuously and throughout, like yeah. you know, there was always and you, something. I and just I mean, all the writing and all the acting in this game is phenomenal. But that relationship, especially, I believed. I, I absolutely believed the way these two characters circled one another and ended up together. Like, it just no reservations. Whereas some of the other ones seemed like a bit of a stretch here and there. Right. So, I mean, overall, like, I mean, now that we've also hit on why we haven't had some of the other people on the list, it's there is a, 
a lot of sort of comp with any romance there's a lot of complexity that you have to deal with with two different people especially of two different races for instance coming together and trying to work with who they are what their differences and similarities might be and then coming to a compromise together with so. yeah, like races are barely even a factor in this it's species like whole right. different uh, yeah a whole different chemistry yeah there's there's that awkward conversation with morden if you're with garris <laughs> or tally where it's like don't actually like your species can't ingest the same kind of dna so <laughs> you know just be careful about Stuff about <laughs> fluids. Wonderful. Yeah, he was a great character. Oh, good, Morden. But I mean, as we're wrapping up here, I just want to point out it is we barely scratch the surface with romances oh, in these games. There's so many options, and it's you know playing it through once, like I did. You're not even you're not seeing like even a quarter of the game. Even if you get like 100 percent completion, you are missing out on so much. Story. Yeah, the branching is so much, and yeah. it's and it's such, so well developed. Like there are romances you can pursue that don't work out because the other right. person's not interested in you. Like it's just like it, there's so many different ways things can happen in the game. It's just ah, oh, what it's it's so well put together. It's you you haven't played all of Mass Effect until you've played it eight times, right? And done things different every time. In any case, that was our guest segment for today. Special thanks to Sonali for joining us. Um, if you haven't played Mass Effect, go do that. Um, the trilogies are out. I think they're actually remastering the trilogy again for current consoles. And a new second trilogy is starting up. We're hoping to see that in 2017. Mass Effect Andromeda. You've been listening to Geek Top 5. Uh, thanks to Sonali. Special thanks to Ben Sound, to Stella Simeonova. And special thanks to you, our audience. If you want to reach us, we can be found at geektop5 at gmail.com for emails on Twitter at geektop5 and on Facebook facebook.com slash geektop5 be sure to stay tuned check out our site and we'll be back in just a couple of weeks 